right, you can turn in your Bible to 1 John. Uh, we'll be in verse, uh, chapter 4, 1 John 4. First John 4 will be in verse 7, verse 7 through 12. First John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, And his love has been perfected in us. Let's pray. Lord, this text is like revealing, like pulling back the curtain in the throne room of heaven. And Lord, you're revealing to us finite, sinful, broken people yourself. You are making known what is unknown, what is mystery. You have made known in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to just stand in awe and wonder of that today. Grace us, we pray, this morning with your Holy Spirit now, that we would attend to your word, and Lord, we would be so changed in accordance with your plan and your purposes, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I hope you have your uh, notes this morning because I'm going to try to stick as close as we can to them. Uh, but since we've started First John, there's, there's really been, if you remember the first talk we've gave, I gave on First John, we talked about, um, Tony, do you just want to use this mic? Let's just do that one. Move around. Does that work? Okay. Yeah, so, so since we started First John, I said that it's like, it's like a, an operating room of some kind. And John is the one wheeling in different tests to see if we're alive as Christians. And so far we've seen really mainly three different tests. We've seen the moral test, the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. We've seen the social test of the difference between love and hatred. And we've seen the doctrinal test, the difference between believing the right things and the wrong things. And at this point, I hope you're wondering, you're starting to wonder once we're in 1 John, which of these tests are most important? Like, like which one would John, if he had a prioritization of them, and say, this one's the most important, which one would we pick? And I would hope you would see at this point that if you take away one of the tests, that you, you don't, you're dead at some level. But I would argue, I think, that John, if he had a favorite test, it's this one. It's it's this one that is God is love. And I want you to see this week, if you get nothing else from today, get this. That since God is love, those who are born of him will love him and others. 
By loving one another, we make known the God who is only seen in the person of, of Christ and bring about his purposes. Now, I've packed a lot in that statement, but there's a lot that is very simple in that statement. There's a lot that's simple in that statement for a couple reasons. Number one, it's because I think most of the time people, if they talk about God in our, in our country, this is what they would talk about. They would talk about the God who is love. Just ask somebody this week. Do this for me. Here's your homework for this week. Go up and ask somebody this week. It doesn't know Jesus. Ask them what they think of God. And I guarantee you they would tell you this passage. They would tell you that God's love. So it's really important we understand it rightly. It's going to be very simple. It's not complicated, but it's important. Listen to what he says again in in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So if you're taking notes, I want you to see that we're looking at what God is. I know that sounds really strange. It ought to sound strange. What God is in his nature. And it's simply this. God is love. Listen to what he says, even in this exhortation. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. This let us is, is, is actually a very passive way of giving us a command. He's saying all of us, me included, him included, he's saying we need to love one another. Very simple. The, the imperative is very easy. The command is very easy. Love one another. And he said this. He has talked about love. This is the third time in this book he's talked about love. The first time he's talked about love, he said love is the true light and it's already shining. The second time he said that love, love is abiding in eternal life. But this time is like the peak. It's like he's taking us to Mount Everest and saying, look out over everything. Let me, let me ground this in the nature of God. Here's the reason. God is love. And I know because if you've been in church for any length of time, you're like, of course God is love. This is so normal. But to sit and say this is normal is to sit and stare at the Grand Canyon and just say, ah, it's normal. It's every day. It's not every day. The first reason that John gives that we should love one another is because love comes from God. Love is the overflow of God's very nature. But he says something. There's, there's a piece, a part, part of this we can't miss. There's three things that he says that the believer will be or do if they are from God. This is what he says. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And then he goes on and he says, And everyone who loves is two things. It's born of God, and he knows God. So there's the first one. Born of God. The birth is not something. Notice this in the text. The birth is not something we bring about. The birth is not something that he says, be born again. He doesn't say that. He says, the one who's born again will love one another. He says that the one who's born again, listen to what everyone who loves, is born of God. The other thing, too, is this. He knows God. Now, the Gnostics, remember who he's been talking to. He's been talking to the Gnostics. He's pushing against this Gnostic idea that there's this special knowledge that you need to have. No, no, no. He's saying that if you love, 
For whoever is of God, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And John's saying that the person who loves is actually the one who knows God. We can't get this the other way around. If we get this the other way around, our Christianity will be so works-based. It will be so dependent upon us. And John is saying it's not dependent on me and you. He's saying that if you're born again, then you will love. If you know God, then you will love. And then the opposite's also true. Listen to what he says in verse 8. He who does not love does not know God. Why? For God is love. So it's no knowledge equals no love. So if you, here's, here's how it's very, very applicable. I, was gonna, I wasn't going to tell this story, but I feel like I need to tell this story. The first time, my, my first week working at ABL, I tell this story sometimes, and it's kind of crash, but deal, just hang with me. I walked into a, a place uh, working, working on plant, and uh, it was my first week working there, and the guy, I walked in, he was kind of a gruffer, older guy. But he looked at me and he's like, so this is your first week here, huh? And I'm like, yep. And he, he seemed like a nice gentleman, but he looked at me and he said, where do you drive going home? And I'm like, I, I mean, I drive up to Frostburg. If you don't know, there's the big Clarysville Bridge. And he looked at me and he said, when you're driving home tonight, just turn and drive off of it. And I remember walking, like literally he's saying like, just go drive off the bridge. That's what he told me. And I'm like, Hello, nice, nice to meet you too. Like, I hope everyone here is not quite like you. That's, that's very unkind. But I walked out, and I'll never forget walking away from this. The guy who I was there with, he's like, yeah, he goes to church with me. <laughs> he's like, he's a deacon. And I'm like, <laughs> did we just like miss this conversation? Like, what, did, what was going on here? And I think every, so I, I walked away from that conversation thinking like, man, what? Wow, okay, I just felt kind of thrown back. And from John's analysis of this, what would he say? Like, this guy might know, he, he might think he knows God. But in that moment, there's no love. If anything, I would say it's actually the other way. He just told me to drive off a bridge, and he was being serious. <laughs> That's what's sad. It's like, so listen to what, I, I love what John Stott went on to say about this. He said, for the loveless Christian, this is his quote, I think it was really good. It's longer, but it's, it's good. He says, for the loveless Christian to profess to know God and to have been born of God is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we cannot speak. Or to have been born of parents whom we do not in any way resemble. It is to fail to manifest the nature of him whom we claim as our father, born of God, and our friend who knows God. Love is as much a sign of Christian authenticity as is righteousness. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a claim on that guy. Like, obviously, there are moments that we fall short as Christians, so it's, it's very possible. I'm not saying he's not a Christian. But I just wonder how often we, we interact with people in our lives who do things similar to that. And John's analysis is no knowledge. If you don't love, then you have no knowledge of who God is. But I'm sure you're wondering, I hope you're wondering, what about the unbeliever who loves people? To understand that humanity has been made in the image of God means that God's image has been, has been placed upon man. It's a part of man's very fabric. But the fall defaced it. But for our question, I would argue that the unbeliever 
It depends on how you define love, if the unbeliever can, can love. Can the unbeliever be kind to one another, to other people? Yes. Can the, can, can the unbeliever be gracious toward other people? Yes. Yes, he can do that. But if you define love in accordance with this standard that John's giving us, I think the answer is no. Unbelievers can't love. Unbelievers can't be. They can be kind. They can be gracious. They can do other, all these other things. But they can't love from a pure heart. And the difference of believer's love and an unbeliever's love is that the believer's loves from the heart. Again, John Stott, he's really good. If you've never read any John Stott, you should go read him. This is what he says. I think it's really good. Human love, he says, however noble and however highly motivated, falls short if it refuses to include the Father and the Son as the supreme objects of its affection. It falls short of the divine pattern and by itself cannot save a man. It cannot be put into, into the balance to com- compensate for the sin of rejecting God. Love alone, therefore, is not a sign of being born of God. Now, let me say why I said that about, depends on how you define love. And I think this is what oftentimes happens, because the unbeliever, I've heard their objection to this. They would say, but I love people. You don't understand. I love people. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love, I love, I love. But the problem is the standard of love. What standard are you loving according to? If we listen to what people say, we can find out very quickly their standard of love. We've all heard it. I love fill in the blank. The situation is, is loving, or this is unloving. By the, by the problem... But the problem is the way they define love. So if someone says, it is unloving of God, and this is the most common objection, it is unloving of God to send people to hell. It's unloving of God to not step in and stop groups like ISIS. It's unloving of God to not do X, Y, Z. And what they do in those moments is they're making a theological statement. They're saying, rather than God is love, that he's the one defining love, they're saying love is God. Love is God. They're they're literally flipping it on its head, and they're saying, this is what God would look like if he's loving. And if he's not this, then I don't want anything to do with him. So we need to be careful when we consider this. Now I want us to move into deep waters. (laughs) Deep waters for a moment. And I want us to look at God's love and simplicity. And I want to talk for a second what I mean by that. Because he says in verse 8 something I want you to notice. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And the question I want us to consider, John has made three striking statements about the nature of God. He said in John 4, God is spirit. He said in John, 1 John 1, God is light. We've already looked at that one. But now he says God is love. And the question is, how do all three of these things fit together? It's God's love and simplicity, or we would call it divine simplicity. And before you throw me out and call me a heretic, this is something that is very old. People have talked about the simplicity of God for as long as the church has been a church. As long as Christianity has been a Christianity. But let me give you an example of the simplicity of God. Think about, I love apple dumplings. Like, I really, really like apple dumplings. 
and apple dumplings, amen, amen, thank you, Jared. But when we talk about apple dumplings, we need to recognize something about apple dumplings, and it's going to sound very simple as we start. An apple dumpling is made of apples, it's made of cinnamon, it's made of flour and sugar and all sorts of other goodies. But if we were to remove any of these beautiful elements from the pie, from the pie or the dumpling, we would not have an apple dumpling anymore. And I'm going to make a, it maybe sounds like an irreverent statement, but God is not like that apple dumpling. Let me tell you why he's not like that apple dumpling. Because God, in his essence, is not made up of parts. God is not like that apple dumpling and not like anything in the created order because he is not made up of parts. Me and you and everything we've ever experienced, everything, just look around you. It's made up of pieces and parts of other created things. And God is not like that. He is not, now when we say simple, divine simplicity, what I don't mean is he's not complicated. That's not what we're talking about. It's a very old sense of the word. The old sense of the word is that he's not compound. He's not composite. He's not made up of different parts. When we talk about God's attributes, we must understand that God is identical with his attributes. And this, is, this, this begins, again, it, it brings us to the edge of the Grand Canyon, and we look out and we start to see God's not like we are. I may be loving. I can be loving. I can be. I can be a lot of different things. But you know what I'm not? I am not love. You want to know why? Because I'm not, I'm composite. I've made up of different elements, different things. God's not like that. John's saying that he is love. He can be at the exact same moment, holy, and he is. He is love, and he is. And what we can't hear is he's a little bit of holiness, and he's a little bit of love, and oh yeah, he's got that wrath piece. That we don't really understand, but we know that he struck down Ananias and Sapphira, and we know this piece and that piece. He's not these pieces, this conglomeration brought together. His justice is loving. His judgment is love. His wrath is love. Every part of God is love. Every action, Old Testament and New, is love. So the question I want us to consider is how does God's wrath and God's love go together? How could be God be both wrathful towards sinners and loving? First off, we need to recognize that it's not impossible that God's love and God's wrath go together. God in his perfection must be wrathful to rebellious image bearers because, because we've offended a holy God. I love what one author said. He said, there is no, yeah, there it is. There is no right love without wrath. Let that sink in for a second. There is no right love without wrath. Why? Because God cannot love moral evil. He can only hate it. Of its very nature, it stands in complete opposition to God's essence. So take for an example, and I'm not love. This is the distinction. I'm not love. God in his essence is love. But if someone came and harmed my family in some way, I would hope to goodness I would burn with wrath. And when we, when we ask 
God's wrath and God's judgment in that way. God's wrath and God's judgment. Let this sink in. I have sat and pondered on this this week, and it's been too much for me to bear. God has not been eternally wrathful. God's wrath is an expression of what happens when sinners stand in his presence. God has been eternally holy, like John has said. He is light, and he's been eternally loving. And his wrath, the expression of his wrath and his mercy, let this sink in. His mercy, too, has not been eternal in that sense. His mercy is an expression of him coming into contact with sinners. And the resounding question of the Old Testament is how on earth is this going to happen? Exodus 34, we read it this morning. The Lord, the Lord, God, the, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. There is the great tension of the Old Testament. How on earth could a loving, holy God dwell with sinners? And thanks be to God that he has given us the answer. Point two, what God did. What God did. Which is Christ died for sinners. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. In this, here's the love. You want to hear the love of God? Here it is. In this, the love of God was manifested or revealed toward us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world. That we might live through him. There it is. There's love. That Christ died for sinners. The reason John gives now for our understanding of love is his son amongst us. We see love expressed in the way that the Father has sent the Son. So here's the reason, very simply. Reason number two is God's gift for us. Reason number one is God is love. Reason number two is God's gift for us. This time, John further clarifies love beyond some vague abstraction in our brain somewhere. He says, you want to see love? Let me tell you love. He has a name, and his name is Jesus. And I want you to see that God's gift amongst us. In this is love, that God has revealed toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. Let me introduce you to somebody. Let me introduce you to a lady named Margaret. And here's, how, here's the problem with a lot of these things. When we talk about God's love and the vagueness and the abstraction of it, oftentimes the way that our love is vertically expresses itself in, in the horizontal relationship. But let me introduce you to Margaret. She says this. She feels as she's been failing in her relationships that matter most. She tries to move closer to her friends and her family, but either they don't respond to her efforts of deepening intimacy, or worse, they move in the opposite direction. And after several seemingly close friendships had faded away, it seemed to her that nothing would change. Every relationship she had failed, and she just can't get to the bottom of it. The problem I have with Margaret, and I think... We can all see ourselves a little bit in Margaret. That's, that's why I give Margaret as an example. Because we think, I think Margaret thinks, that she, she thinks that it's first off her love toward God. Let me tell you how she thinks that. 
Because she misses this piece in verse 9. That God sent His only Son begotten into the world that we might live through Him. You know what she hears in that? Well, I'm supposed to love God now. I, I need to love Him. God needs my love in some, some way, like, like he's, he's bringing along little breadcrumbs, and she has to come pick them up. That's not what this text says. It says, just like Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. But what Margaret hears in that is she hears, oh yeah, I know you died and all that stuff, Lord Jesus, but I need to pay you back. I got to give the gift back. I can't receive the gift. I need to give it back to you. And that expresses itself in all these other ways in her other relationships. Here's what we need to see is it's God's gift from heaven. So it's not just God's gift to us. It's God's gift among us. It's God's gift from heaven. Notice what he says in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God. Notice that. He even clarifies, it's not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want you to picture a little boy walking into a a coin shop. And in the coin shop, there's one particular coin that's, that's worth millions and the little boy's in there with his father, and he says, Daddy, I want that coin. And his, the father says, Son, that coin, we can't afford that coin. But his son's like, Oh, well, I have 20 coins here. I'll give you 20 coins for this one coin. This one central composite coin that's worth millions of dollars. Let me give you, I have uh, 20 cents, 25 cents. Here, take this. I have many coins. The problem with viewing love, and John addresses it here. He says, it's not that we've loved God, but that he has loved us. When we approach God in that manner, and we think that God is the one who needs our love, he doesn't. He doesn't. You want to know why? Because he is love. From eternity past, he has been love. If we believe that our love for God determines our relationship with him, it will not be good. It will be humanistic, it will be man-centered, and it will look more earthly than heavenly. And that father would reply to that little boy and say, Son, you don't understand what you're asking. Now go back to Margaret with me. The one who's had all sorts of relational issues. If a person doesn't first realize that they have been loved from above as a gift, they will abuse every relationship around them. They will have burdensome expectations. They will destroy and sabotage every relationship near them. You know what Margaret needs to hear? She needs to hear the unadulterated love of God in her life. She needs to hear that before she ever could love God, he has loved her. That's what she needs to hear. But how does that look? Let's look at this last point. It's God's gift through propitiation. So the reason is it's God's gift. It's God's gift among us. It's God's gift from heaven. And finally, it's God's gift through propitiation. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
The completeness of his love and the completeness of his sending of his son are found in the cross of Jesus Christ. God's love for us can simply be defined as love through propitiation. If you remember, propitiation is just wrath-bearing sacrifice. It's the one who he has stood in our place, bearing our wrath on himself. He, that is the Lord Jesus himself, is the wrath-bearing sacrifice for sinners. And it is the very definition of love. It is in the love of the Son of God dying on behalf of people that we are undeserving and unworthy of that true love is shown. A couple of years ago, I think it was back in 2012, uh, the hymn, we sing the hymn here, In Christ Alone. There's, there's a line from it. Um, I think I'll I'll make sure it gets up here. But there was a committee. uh, So here's the line from the song. It says, Till on that cross that Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. We sing this all the time. The wrath of God was satisfied. But there was a committee from from a very liberal denomination, and they came and they said, Well, what about, hold on, hold on, hold on. We don't like that. We don't really like like, the wrath of God, because God's love. And they, they requested to change it. Listen to what they requested to change it to. They said, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, same words, the love of God was magnified. And they're like, well, well, we don't like wrath. This whole idea of God's wrath burning against sinners. We don't like that idea. So why don't we just change it to the love of God was magnified? And in it, what I want you to notice is I would want them to consult John. Listen to what he says in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. That's love. That's love. Not, not just that love was magnified in that way. You can't pit God's love and God's wrath against each other. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're saying, well, we, we don't really need this wrath thing. We need to see that God's love is expressed in Christ bearing his own wrath toward us. And in John's mind, this is not the case. This, this, this love being magnified, that's not the case. He's saying that the Son of God dying on the cross in our place, that's where love is seen. That's where love is seen. But it doesn't end there. I, you know, I would, I would just love it. It would be beautiful. We could put it on postcards if he just ended it at that point. But he doesn't. He goes on and he says, what God is doing. This is the last section. What God is doing, which is perfecting us through love. This is the part to me, that begins to, we, we begin to look over the Grand Canyon and stand in awe and wonder that by loving one another, we make known the God who is only seen in the person of Christ. And we bring about his purposes. Listen to what he says in verse 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, so, so if God so loved us, meaning that if Jesus Christ died for, our, for us, taking the wrath of God for us, We also ought to love one another. And then he goes on and he says, No one has ever seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. The command here has been the same command since the beginning. Love your brothers and sisters, because you've been loved with an unfathomable love. What I want us to see is the third reason he gives. The first reason is that God is love. The second reason is that God's gift for us. And finally, it's God's present activity. God's present activity. And I want you to see the two things underneath that. 
or nobody can see God, and then God's love perfected. Now, we should, we should question this when he says, no one has seen God at any time. Okay, so wait a second. Daniel, I thought you said that Jesus Christ, you're saying that he's the second person of the Trinity, he's come. How, so how could John say that no one has ever seen God at any time? Well, there's a couple things. He's picking up something that he said earlier in the Gospel of John. But no one can see God in his essence. But what Jesus has come to do is make God known to us. Colossians 1.15, listen to this. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn among all creation. And Christ is indeed the image of the invisible God. But Christ is currently on the throne of heaven. So here's the distinction he's making. He's not saying that no one's ever seen God at any moment ever, because he said in in John 1, listen to what we read this morning, no one has ever seen God, but then he goes on and says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Okay, so he, he can't be saying, he can't be conflicting with himself in that way. But listen to what he goes on and says. Don't miss what he goes on and says, because it, it makes a big deal. John has said that the Lord Jesus himself was the only God in human flesh. He was the one who came from the Father full of grace and truth. But the question then is, how then is God going to continue to reveal himself to the world? So see this change of his in approach. John 1, he's saying, Jesus Christ, he has made the Father known because he's come and he is God incarnate. But here he's saying something different than that. He goes on and he says, no one has seen God at any time. But, you could include a but there. But, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. So God's love perfected. To say that God's love has been perfected, he is not implying that God's love has been deficient. He's not saying it's somehow incomplete. But what he's using, that word perfected, he's using it for a different end. He's saying, here's the end. Here's the end. Here's the goal. Here's the accomplishment. Listen to what, I love what one author said. He said, God's already pristine love finds its fullest possible earthly expression as people respond to the message of Christ and reach out to one another as a result. What John is picking up here is he's saying, not just God has loved us, Christ has come. He's saying now that Christ is the ascended Christ in heaven on the throne. He's saying we, as we love one another, reveal God to the nations. 1 Corinthians 13, he says this, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three But the greatest of these is love. Why? Well, because faith will one day pass away. Hope will one day pass away. One day we will no longer need faith. One day we will no longer need hope. One day we will no longer need these things. But you know what we'll still have? Is love. And as we do it, we don't love. We do not love like Margaret in this story, in this this message. We love like one who's first been loved. In our families, in our workplaces, in our communities, we love knowing that God is using this love to bring about his purposes. I hope you can see and wonder at this this week. I know this message, like I've said, it's, it's so common. We, we hear this so often. But don't miss the glory and the wonder of this. 
that God has not only, not only has he, he made himself known, but now he said, you all are mine, and now I will use you to make my name known. This is the glory of it. This is the wonder of it, that we are included in the plan and the purposes of God. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected. It's completed in us. So we're going to move into a time of reflection. And I want us to consider this text. I want us to consider what we've heard today. I want us to consider maybe some ways that we, like Margaret, have rather than loving people made in the image around us, have used and abused, taken advantage of, set expectations up. I want us to consider that. So take just a minute um, and reflect on that um, and respond in any way the Lord's prompting you. Father, we come to you right now knowing, Lord, that it is not that we have loved you, but, Lord, you have initiated your love. You have won the victory. You have won our souls to yourself. And, Lord, you don't just leave it there. You actually... Include us in your purposes and in your plans to make your name known where it's not known. So God, help us this week to, to before we see that it's our obligation to love you, help us to glory, help us to stand in awe and wonder of the fact that you are love and you have loved us with an unfathomable, unknowable love. Do that in us, I pray, this week. For this is our prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This concludes our service time.